One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Listeners should refer to the disclaimer in the episode notes and at the end of this podcast. There's very few Mark Zuckerbergs in Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos was a one-man band selling books. That's a completely different kettle of fish to managing a company the size of Amazon, but he's been able to do it. Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook in his dorm room. That's a completely different kettle of fish to managing the size and complexity of a business like Facebook now, but he manages to do it. But a lot of the big S&P 500 companies, they don't have the founders managing more because it takes a certain skill set to be able to manage a company of a large size. G'day and welcome back to Equity ASA, brought to you by the Australian Shareholders Association. I'm Phil Muscatello. Today I'm pleased to welcome Mark Tobin, the founder of Coffee Microcaps. G'day, Mark. Hi, Phil. How are you? Always good. Thank you. Now, Mark is an analyst who focuses on the small end of the ASX. It's a part of the market that doesn't receive a lot of attention. It carries a lot of risk and rewards. Mark has been passionate about finding undiscovered microcap stocks ever since he began his career as an equity analyst in Sydney. And we're going to be talking about how Mark goes about assessing the quality of company management. But before we get in that, can you just give us a bit of a, a brief bio, how you came to this point with Coffee Microcaps? Yeah, so the accent will probably give it away, but uh, yeah, I grew up in Ireland and worked in Dublin for a little while after I finished university and then started traveling the world and uh, ended up in Australia like so many young Irish people do, I guess. And while I was there, got a job at Wilson Asset Management in Sydney and yeah, worked as an equity analyst there for a couple of years with Jeff Wilson and Matthew Kidman and Chris Stott and All the team there, names that are kind of uh, fairly familiar to probably maybe a lot of people. That must have been a great education for you with that sort of team. Yeah, a great education. I mean, Jeff, you know, has been around the industry since the 80s. Matthew Kidman was somebody great to learn from as well. He's had a very diverse career for anybody who knows Matthew. And uh, yeah, Chris Stott, he's actually younger than me, I think by about a year. He had been there kind of two years I think before me and he really helped me along a lot and he understood like I guess somebody who was coming in you know trying to learn from the ground up because he kind of done the same thing himself so he was really helpful in kind of my education and kind of going back to basics to you know really understand companies from the ground up so yeah it was it was a great place to learn. Yeah and um, I suppose that's uh, really what's led you to the small cap side of things and how coffee microcaps you have regular webinars where you're um, interviewing CEOs about their companies and giving um, viewers a bit of an insight into what's going on with these companies. Yeah exactly I mean Wilson S Management is a bit bigger today than when I worked there but I mean I think people would probably know them as kind of a, a small cap specialist so we looked at a lot of small ASX companies when I was there and a good few of them you would class as, as kind of microcaps, which is kind of anything under $300 million in market capitalization. 
and yeah, through one thing and, a, and another, I started Coffee Microcaps about two years ago, mainly kind of out of frustration that, you know, I felt there wasn't really a platform for non-resources, non-biotech companies to kind of connect with investors and basically to provide a platform for them to kind of get their story out there to the wider market. And that's what we hope to achieve with Coffee Microcaps is just kind of provide a platform for those companies to tell their story. So you have a unique lens through which you view companies and how you're going to value them because obviously the companies of this sort of size don't um, have the same metrics as uh, the larger end of the market. So let's go through some of the checklist. And um, I think we're starting off with uh, related party transactions and how important this is in assessing company management. Yeah, if we could just preface the discussion, you know, I wanted to do this because a lot of your guests and, and you know, people you'll see on CNBC and Sky News Business and stuff, you know, they always talk, you know, you need to have good quality management. But, you know, how does your ordinary retail investor try and go and assess management? It's such a nebulous idea for, I think, a lot of investors. And, you know, a lot of retail investors won't have the access to company management that say, institutional investors will where. You know, they're probably catching up with them two, three times a year, you know, after reporting season in or in reporting season, say February, March, and then again in like August, September. So, you know, if you meet the same CEO in person, you know, three, four, five, six times, you, you can get a decent feel for them and kind of track what they're doing and get them to explain it a bit more when you see them in person. But, you know, the retail shareholder can't do that, but yet they're constantly told, you know, back management. You know, there's good management in place there. So I wanted to kind of, with this, pick out a couple of points where the retail shareholder from a kind of a quantitative point of view could assess management. And as you said, the first one is like related party transactions. So related party transactions are red flags for me generally where they exist. I'll just say most of what we're talking about now can be found in the annual report. But generally, yeah, related party transactions. I struggle to find suitable long-term stewards of companies that you know are operating in the interest of minority shareholders where you have related party transactions now because i generally look at micro caps and small caps you do find the other exception where you know the founder of the business they might own the building that the company operates out of you know especially if it's you know some kind of manufacturing setup or you know they've got a small office building but again there you want to check that it's you know they're paying market related rents for the area that they're operating in that the ceo is in charging the company a you know a very high rental and let's say for the office building example I'm sure office rents in Sydney, Melbourne, right across Australia have come right down since work from home and COVID and everything has happened in the last year. So, you know, that'd be something to watch if they do operate out of a building owned by the CEO, the founder, you know, the chairman, whatever it might be. So, yeah, on the whole, I would say, you know, related party transactions in the long run are a red flag and probably a tick for kind of lower quality management rather than high quality management. Okay, and next on your list is the remuneration report and uh, executive pay. And I think uh, members of the association are right across this one, especially with the company monitoring that goes on. But um, tell us from your point of view how you find out this information and how important it is for you. Firstly, I'd definitely want to commend the ASA and all of the volunteer company monitors. I think they do a fantastic job on this issue. And, you know, I'd love to see it expanded down to the micro cap end of the market. But, uh, you know, with over 2,000 stocks listed on the ASX, uh, we could be a while getting that many volunteers. But 
I mean, when we don't have the ASM monitors where we are down in microcap land, you know, the thing I look at is uh, where does their pay line up for kind of industry averages or for like ASX CEOs or ASX board members uh, in general? Now, my own view, you know, a lot of times you'll see in remuneration reports, they'll say that their pay is in line with industry averages or in line with kind of listed company norms. But you know, what happens when the average is too high to start off with? Like just generally across the board, people are getting paid too much. And I think this is one of the causes for social dislike of corporate and CEO pay and, you know, could threaten their social license to operate in the long run. But that's probably a more philosophical discussion. But the nuts and bolts of judging, are they getting paid well? What I like to do is I'll take the company I'm looking at, find five others that are kind of similar so, you know, their market caps are around the same. They're operating in the same industry. So, like, say, like five healthcare names or five technology names. And, you know, just get an average across those and compare back to the company that I'm looking at and just see, you know, is it kind of roughly around what I've worked out on my little average or is it kind of, you know, way out on its own? And it's like completely out of sync with what these other five companies are. And, you know, if I can just say on, on the smaller microcaps, when you've got CEOs paying themselves too much money, it really can hamper the growth of that company. Because if they're only making, you know, a million, two million dollars a year in profit, the CEO, for example, let's say he's overpaid by, we call it $200,000, you know, that's 10% of their profit. That's like they're losing to CEO pay, which could be, utilize to you know hire more staff one or two more salespeople, invest in r d and you know can actually hamper the growth of the company because it's draining cash flow away from it so i think you know take five companies get an average and compare that to the one company you're looking at that's what i kind of normally do and again excessive pay usually another red flag and a sign of poor quality management and then there's the board structure and uh, whether the board and the structure of the board is fit for purpose. Yeah. So the board structure, again, you can apply the pay to the board structure, what we just talked about there. We can apply the pay to that. The skills of the board is another important one. Let's say you've got a mining company. I would expect most of the people on that board to have mining experience. There's no point in having lots of board members who have technology experience or financial services experience. You know, you want a little bit of diversity of skills, you know, somebody maybe from a legal background or an accounting background or a marketing background, but by and large you want to see have the board the skills to manage a business in this industry. And then the second thing is to look at their history, you know, where have these board members worked before? Because a lot of times you'll find the CEO, the board, a lot of them have all kind of worked at a particular company at some point in time. And it could be literally just a case of, you know, the CEO has found this company and he's brought all his mates over as kind of board members. And then you, you got to wonder, well, how much are they actually challenging the CEO, holding the CEO to account? So that's the, a thing on independence. So, you know, those are some of the things to look out for around board. And again, you know, a high quality board and a high quality CEO, there'll be independence and there'll be fair pay. And then we come to insider ownership. Now, insider ownership is uh, something that uh, a lot of investors look for, but it's not necessarily the panacea that um, everyone can be looking for. Yeah, let me say, you know, better to have it than not. But as you say, it's not the panacea many, I guess, fund managers would have you believe. I mean, you can have some cases where there's 
excessive insider ownership levels can actually negatively affect minority shareholders. You know, it's the old adage, you know, a private company that just happens to be listed. For me, if I'm looking for kind of quality management, you know, what do I look for in insider ownership? What's the trend in ownership? Is the CEO or insiders constantly selling down? Or are they increasing their ownership through on-market purchases with their own cash or rather than, you know, getting these like bonus stock options and things like that? Let's say for board members on the insider ownership, generally, I like to see a shareholding that's three to five X their annual compensation for being a board member. So that means that, you know, they've got a decent amount at stake by being a shareholder compared to, you know, what they're getting paid to be a director on the company. CEOs can be a little hard to apply that metric to because, you know, they may be the original founders or they might have like just been brought in a year ago. So it can be hard for them to build up that shareholding. But, you know, boards of directors, they generally don't change as often as the CEOs. So they should have a decent stake in the game. You know, one big red flag for me is where I see board members and they really don't have any shareholding in the company at all. It's not a good look for me. And I wonder how engaged are they or how do they protect minority shareholders there when it's not going to hurt their back pocket if something goes awry with strategy, the CEO, acquisitions that blow up, all of that kind of thing. But if if they've got their own money at stake and it's a decent amount, you know, they're going to be thinking about the shareholder impact just as much as a small retail shareholder are going to feel it. Yeah, we'll definitely focus their attention. Mm, 100%. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. CEO tenure. Again, this is another one where it can be difficult to find the sweet spot, whether a CEO has been there too soon or too long. Yeah. I mean, I always look at how long the CEO has been with the business and, you know, what's their track record of growing the business? You know, growth's very important at the micro cap end. Maybe not so important if you're the CEO of Commonwealth Bank or CSL, but you've got to be very wary, especially in the micro cap land of what I call self-limiting CEOs. If the company was capped at you know 50 million five years ago and they're still around as the ceo today you know maybe that's for their skill set and their capabilities that's as big a company as they can manage it's very different for a company to be able to take it from you know from that initial maybe 10 million to 50 million or can they take it to a 200 million company or, or a 1 billion dollar company you know you can find a company growth stagnates with a ceo who can't manage a business or manage a strategy to get to that larger size. If you've found a company and the CEO has been there 
know, seven, eight, nine years. And they've grown the business from 10 million to 200 million or 300 million or whatever it is. I'm not just talking about market capitalization. You can see that through revenue growth and profit growth and everything. That's a real high quality sign. Like that's a sign of a CEO who can really manage up, manage growth and is able to handle a bigger business than where you are now. There's very few, if we can take extreme examples, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's and, and Jeff Bezos. I mean, Jeff Bezos was a one-man band selling books. Now, that's a completely different kettle of fish to managing a company the size of Amazon, but he's been able to do it. And, you know, similarly for Mark Zuckerberg, you know, he started Facebook in his dorm room in college. Now, that's a completely different kettle of fish to managing the size and complexity of a business like Facebook now, but he manages to do it. But a lot of the big S&P 500 companies, they don't have the founders managing them anymore because it takes a certain skill set to be able to manage a company of a large size. So yeah, beware the self-limiting CEOs. And then there's capital allocation. So um, where is the company deploying its capital? Exactly. And, you know, capital allocation covers, a, you know, a lot of different facets that the CEO and the board can manage. So it's acquisitions, you know, what acquisitions are they doing or, and have they created value for shareholders or have they blown up? And being able to kind of manage the shifting sands of the market and the business cycle that they operate in. So, you know, are they generally doing acquisitions at the right time? You know, are they using debt effectively? Are they paying out dividends effectively? Are they doing share buybacks? If you read a couple of annual reports and you see the board and the management saying, okay, we're going to pay a dividend this year. They didn't pay one three years ago. They're doing a share buyback now, but they didn't do one, you know, a year ago. You know, if you see a board switching between all of these, to me, that's a sign that they're really focused on capital allocation and where they can put the company's capital to the best use. And, you know, sometimes it is buying back shares. Sometimes it is rewarding shareholders with a dividend. Sometimes it might be taking on very cheap debt to finance an expansion into New Zealand, for example. So capital allocation is crucial and bad capital allocation, you know, you can see all the time. The probably easiest way to see is, you know, acquisitions that end up getting written down for massive non-cash impairments as the announcements like to phrase it but you know i'll just give a more interesting example around capital allocation was a company that declared a dividend at the end of its financial year in august with a dividend reinvestment plan so you know nothing too out of the ordinary there but then i see the company two months later in october say that they're going to do a share buyback and the share price is roughly around what it was in august now why would you be doing a share buyback in October rather than August. The share price was cheap in October, but in, in August they thought it was fine to like do you know a dividend reinvestment plan and declare a dividend. They should have been doing the share buyback back in August. So to me that's you know that is a clear sign of like low quality management, a low quality board who don't understand capital allocation. So you know that's a way where you can judge the board's capital allocation and um, dividend policy, acquisitions, use of debt, share buybacks, all of that. And you can track that over time. So speaking of uh, the use of debt, that's the next thing we're coming to is how is management financing the company? Of course, in this end of the market that you're interested in, you really do have to be careful because there can be, it can be a little bit shonky down this end of the market as well. 
Sorry, we don't want to tar everyone with the same brush, having said that, but you do have to look out for some certain warning signals. Yeah, whether it's down my end of the market or up the big end of town, you got to be careful with debt full stop. You know, a lot of blow-ups are linked to companies who end up with too much debt through whatever means. And remember, crooks don't want to steal their own money. You know, they want to steal other people's money. So, you know, a high debt company goes bust and the bank and the shareholders are left holding the bag. Now, a business with little or no debt hits the rocks. And, you know, let's say the CEO and the board are decent investors in, you know, they're going to lose their own money. So internally financed companies, they know how hard it is to generate a profit. So they're generally more judicious in using that profit for growth. Cheap debt globally now with banks falling over themselves, it's easy money to get. And, you know, there's a case for CEOs and boards maybe taking advantage of the low interest rate environment that we're in. But by and large, you know, high debt companies are the ones who blow up and it's CEOs and boards not really understanding the perils that can come with debt and when it all goes wrong. Whereas if you've got a board who's generally growing the company through profits that they're reinvesting back in the company and have little or no debt, you'll find that they can really weather the bad times and generally not usually connected to the blow-ups that you see in the market. So we might just uh, quickly run through the last three points, which is investor relations, company culture, and customer feedback, because these are all a little bit more about the vibe of the company and I guess something that you have to have a bit more of a feel for. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm sure some of your listeners are you're now looking at kind of multiple companies or whatever. So if we take investor relations, you know, how are they communicating with minority investors, i.e. your everyday retail investor? When you send them a query, if you send them a query about something to do with the business or you saw in their annual results, you know, how quickly are they coming back to you? Good companies will respond to their shareholders. doesn't matter if they're Magellan or they're an ordinary, everyday shareholder. How detailed are their results presentations and annual reports? Are they trying to provide you context and understanding about the company and the strategy and generally trying to keep shareholders informed? Company culture, again, culture, another nebulous topic sometimes where it's hard to pin down, like, how do you define a good culture or bad culture? I kind of look on their like corporate websites. Have they got a B Corp certification or B Corp for anyone who doesn't know is kind of becoming a gold standard for social diversity, environmental policies at companies. So Kathmandu is one that's listed that has a B Corp certification. It's quite big in the US, but it's coming more into Australia. Australian Ethical is another one, obviously. Um, is it a good place to work? How do you assess that? As a retail shareholder, you can go onto the website Glassdoor and see what its, its rating is on there. Or you often see in the paper, you know, the 50 best places to work in Australia or the 100 best places to work in Australia. You know, have a look down that list and see if one of your investee companies or some ASX listed companies are in there. Because if they're getting on that list, you know, that speaks to good company culture if their employees are saying it's a good place to work there. What was that one you just mentioned, uh, Mark? Uh, Glassdoor? That's an interesting one to refer to. Yeah, so Glassdoor is a website where um, you can go and look up what it's like to work at a company. So it's usually ex-employees posting on there, usually not completely slating the company. A lot of them will say it wasn't a bad place to work, the pay was good, training wasn't amazing, or it might be management was very hierarchical. Generally, if you read kind of 10 or 15 reports 
or posts from various different employees, you'll generally get a sense or a couple of common themes on what it's like to work for these various companies. And yeah, as I said, those 50 best places are 100 best places to work. And you know, the management creates that culture and they want to be able to attract employee talent and retain employee talent because hiring, training employees, you know, that churn is very, very costly for the company in terms of just disruption to general business and the actual cash cost of training and, you know, paying recruitment fees and stuff. Of course, these days, customer feedback is uh, much easier to find than it was in the past. Uh, yeah, 100%. Growing organically, you know, means customers like the business, you know, they're not losing them. Most customers want to do work with a company that they feel has got a, a good reputation rather than a bad reputation. So things to look for here are, you know, customer good service awards, either from CanStar, or you can look up maybe what their net promoter score is. Or if you're looking at online e-commerce businesses, you might have seen on a couple of websites, if you do online shopping, they'll have their trust pilot score up there. And that speaks to me. If they have these awards on their corporate websites or they're winning them, you know, management is very focused on their customers and their needs. And they'll be able to adapt and change to what their customers want. And generally, their customers will probably stay with them longer and probably buy more from them. So, you know, bad customer feedback generally points to low quality management, not focused on either their customer or not able to deliver a product that the customer wants effectively and efficiently or a combination of both. So those 10 points, you know, while a lot of them maybe sound a bit uh, nebulous, if you put them all together, you can have a pretty good, I think, idea of what the kind of management of a company is without having to kind of meet them. A lot of these indicators give you an overall sense of is there good management at the helm here or is there kind of poor management at the helm here? Yeah, no, it's a great checklist. So, Mark, tell us about Coffee Microcaps and um, if listeners want to find out some more information about it. Probably the easiest way to find me is on Twitter. So the Twitter handle is capital C Microcaps, so C Microcaps. I also have a YouTube channel where all the presentations from the various microcap companies come up. Just look up Coffee Microcaps. Or they can just reach out to me via email. It's simply mark at coffeemicrocaps.com. Mark Tobin, thank you very much for joining me today. Cheers. Thanks, Phil. Important. Please remember these podcasts are produced to provide information and education, and they're not designed to provide financial advice, nor are they a recommendation to buy shares in the companies featured or discussed. The Australian Shareholders Association does not endorse or favour any specific commercial product or company. Please obtain independent professional advice before investing. We value your feedback and questions. Please contact us at share at asa.asn.au if you have any suggestions for guests or specific questions you'd like answered. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.